Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we compare Mormon and Credo Christian thought. Wow, what a year. This will be the final bonus and recap episode on the 2023 um, Come Follow Me curriculum. And though there was se- there were several things, I figured I'd land on at least two, maybe three if we have time, issues that I just oh, I have to talk about. <laughs> One of them was a little bit of a deep dive that I went into on Wilford Woodruff's vision of the founding fathers, alleged vision. And this was prepared for the eternal progression in the spirit world episode as an example of just how normal what Bible-believing people would call necromancy (laughs) is in the LDS community. And of course, the higher the priesthood, uh, not the more visible it is necessarily, but the more accepted it is as authoritative. But first, I figured I'd read this quote from Joseph Smith. This also inclu- this is a statement that also includes his brother Hiram and a few others. But just we've mentioned this throughout the year. You know, it's not just the Constitution. There's something to it, or there's wisdom there, things like that. The U.S. Constitution and LDS theology is inspired of God. In fact, in DNC 98, anything more or less than constitutional law is, you know, not of the LDS um, gods. So here's this quote. Hence we say that the Constitution of the United States is a glorious standard. See, that's where Benson got that. It is founded in the wisdom of God. It is a heavenly banner. It is to all those who are privileged with the sweets of liberty, like the cooling shades and refreshing waters of a great rock in a thirsty and weary land. It is like a great tree under whose branches men from every clime can be shielded from the burning rays of the sun. Uh, Skipping ahead. We say that God is true. Notice the singular. Interesting. That the Constitution of the United States is true. That the Bible is true. That the Book of Mormon is true. That the Book of Covenants is true. <laughs> See, it's on the same level. That Christ is true. Oh, okay, we finally got him in. That the ministering angels sent forth from God are true, and that we know that we have a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Bizarre language for a temple-building people. Whose builder and maker is God. Notice the singular once again. So, anyway, this is... <laughs> um, it's not just Benson that made this up. It's Joseph Smith. Now, in so you have a Kirtland temple, which if you look at it, is completely different than even just theologically. If you look at what the building was there for and how it was used, very different from the Nauvoo period temple that we see. Nauvoo temple that they do perform ordinances in um, right before they leave, travel out west. They're in Utah. The Mormons are in Utah, what we call Utah, I guess. Deseret, and then eventually the state of Utah. And the first temple out here will be the St. George Temple. And it will be dedicated April 6th, 1877, though there are times they can use it as as you go along. Um, but And then it's funny, there's dedicatory prayers and blessings 
you know, for, here's the corner, here's another stone, let's have another one. Um, <laughs> it is an amazing feat, um, but <laughs> it's funny, the dedicatory services were three days, at each of which the Apostle Lorenzo Snow, who had been trained under Joseph Smith, led the Hosanna shout, which I think we mentioned earlier this year. So it was dedicated by... Daniel Wells, we haven't mentioned him for a while. We mentioned him earlier in the year. Um, he was also involved in an ex- with an extermination order for the Timpanogos in Utah Valley. But once that temple's made, all of a sudden, um, Wilford Woodruff, who will become the fourth president of the church, starts immediately doing work for the dead. All sorts of work. Um. In fact, it, just as an example, this is reading from uh, Things in Heaven and Earth, a great biography of Woodruff by Thomas Alexander. That um, This is sad. In June of 1877, he received a telegram that um, one of his, from one of his um, polygamist wives that his 20-year-old son Brigham had drowned in the Bear River when he was um, hunting. So less than a month later, July 5th, he seals five single women to his deceased son. You know, make sure he has the polygamy, so new and everlasting covenant, you see. So he, as he's working here in this temple, he's also developing the temple theology that has become the norm in LDS theology uh, through even a Joseph F. Smith. But there's one thing in particular that is one vision in particular that is extremely famous that I want to look at. And to, to start off, let me read from the teachings of Ezra Taft Benson, another president of the church. And he tells this story. He loved talking about the Founding Fathers and the Constitution. And he says... When I became president of the Twelve and Spencer W. Kimball became president of the church, we met, just the two of us, every week after our Thursday meetings in the temple. Um, and he, uh, he says after one of these meetings, he, they talked about the sacred documents of some of the older temples, St. George in particular. So he had a state conference down there, and he talks about um, going into the archives, the walk and vault of that temple, and reviewed the documents. And uh, that's when he got to see the documents about this vision. I wanted to see the record, and I saw the record. They did appear to Wilford Woodruff twice and asked why the work hadn't been done for them. They had founded this country in the constitution of this land, and they had been true to those principles. Later, the work was done for them. In the archive of the temple, I saw in a book in bold handwriting the names of the founding fathers and others, including Columbus and other great Americans, for whom the work had been done in the house of the Lord." This is all one great program on both sides of the veil. We are fortunate to be engaged in it on this side of the veil. I think the Lord expects us to take an active part in preserving the Constitution and our freedom. Um, he mentioned another time when he's uh, writing about this. He talks about, according to Wolford Witch Journal, John Wesley. They love Wesley. Benjamin Franklin, Christopher Columbus. I should say John Wesley, who admitted to his brother later in life that he probably didn't even believe. Anyway. Uh, it's just, that's kind of, why is that predictable? That the perfectionists sometimes 
end up not even believing. Um, Benjamin Franklin and Christopher Columbus were ordained high priests. Yes, according to LDS theology, Christopher Columbus, John Wesley, Benjamin Franklin, and George Washington are high priests. And according to Wilfred Woodruff, Ben Franklin appeared to him in a, another dream, and after, after which he performed the second anointing. Yes, there is a higher endowment for the connected elite. Um, that was performed for Ben Franklin and George Washington. And uh, most LDS have not had that performed, uh, not been able to. So that's kind of interesting. Now, let me read from the Journal of Discourses. Um, Elder Wilford Woodruff, September 16th, 1877. And let me pay attention to the specific wording of him describing this vision. Which, interestingly enough, in Thomas Alexander and another scholar who I'm about to mention, he doesn't record this incident in his journal, which is interesting, though he recounts this uh, more than once. This is what he says. We have labored in the St. George Temple since January, and we have done all we could there. And the Lord has stirred up our minds, and many things have been revealed to us concerning the dead. President Young has said uh, to us, and it is verily so, if the dead could, they would speak in language loud as 10,000 thunders, calling upon the servants of God to rise up and build temples, magnify their calling, and redeem their dead. This doubtless sounds strange to those present who believe not the faith and doctrine of the LDS. It sure does. But when we get to the spirit world, we will find out that all that God has revealed is true. We will find, out, find, too, that everything there is reality and that God has a body, parts, and passions. If you listen to the episode, Do LDS Believe in Hell? That comment in conference should mean quite a bit. And the erroneous ideas that exist now with regard to him will have passed away. I feel to say little else to the LDS wherever and whenever I have the opportunity to speak into them than to call upon them to build these temples now underway, to hurry them up to completion. The dead will be after you. They will seek after you as they have after us in St. George. <laughs> Just to be expected. This is a spiritualist movement. <laughs> Just remember that next time you call them conservative. <clears throat> Hopefully you know better. They called upon us knowing that we held the keys and power to redeem them. I will here say before closing that two weeks before I left St. George, the spirits of the dead gathered around me. And I, I, if you want, you can Google painting. <laughs> I, I'm something like Woodruff, Signers, Painting, Temple, something like that. There is a painting of this. Um, by the way, St. George Temple being one of my favorites to go to when I was in. And so here's the spirits of the dead. They gather around him. Wanting to know why we did not redeem them, his wording, did not redeem them, said they, and this is the quote, this is what the spirits of the dead told Wilfred Woodruff supposedly in the St. George Temple. You have had the use of the endowment house for a number of years, and yet nothing, and it, I want you to notice that detail, the endowment house, for a number of years, and yet nothing has ever been done for us. We laid the foundation of the government you now enjoy, and we never apostatized from it. Notice that apostatized from the foundation of the government. But we remained true to it and were faithful to God in the singular. 
then Woodruff's comment. These were the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And they waited on me for two days and two nights. I thought it very singular that notwithstanding so much work had been done and yet nothing had been done for them. The thought never entered my heart from the fact, I suppose, that there to four, our minds were reaching after our more immediate friends and relatives, which he was big on encouraging. In fact, remember, Woodruff is the, the guy who transitioned away from the law of adoption, which was more of a priesthood family line, um, to sealing to your actual genealogical line. He was big on that. I straightway went into the baptismal font and called upon Brother McAllister to baptize me for the signers of the Declaration of Independence and 50 other eminent men, making 100 in all. Or was it 99? That's one of the questions. Including John Wesley, Columbus, and others. I then baptized him for every president of the United States, except three. We'll land on why three. Why wouldn't you do three? And when their cause is just, somebody will do the work for them. So, I have felt to rejoice exceedingly in this work of redeeming the dead. Redeeming the dead. Okay. So, here's the thing. Saving ordinances were performed for famous personalities as soon as the doctrine of vicarious temple work was revealed. That's just key to know. So in terms of the signers and other famous political figures, what the evidence as it stands more recently, what does it say? I'm, I'm relying um, in part on this Excellent article I, in terms of the data in it. Anyway, the conclusion. I, you know, I'm not too fond of some of his <laughs> trying to make excuses for Woodruff. That being said, um, this article is Wilfred Woodruff's vision of the signage of the Declaration of Independence by Brian Stuy. I think it's Stuy. S T U Y. And he points this out immediately. You start having um, ordinances done for the dead. So, for example, we have. Charlotte Haven doing baptisms for the dead um, in the Missouri, Mississippi River. This is as early as May 1893. And um, if I can find this, I would love to read this account to you because it's so interesting. Um, let's see here. Sorry, I'm not sure I'm going to find this quickly. Um, what's interesting about this is she actually mentions George Washington's name being said. So here you have a specific example of a priesthood ordinance being performed for George Washington and others already in early May 1843. Right here, found it. We followed the bank toward town and spied quite a crowd of people and soon perceived there was a baptism. Two elders stood knee-deep in the icy cold water and immersed one proxy after another as fast as the proxies could come down the bank. We soon observed that some of them went in and were plunged several times. We were told that they were baptized for the dead who had not had an opportunity of adopting the doctrines of the Latter-day Saints. 
So these poor mortals in ice-cold water were releasing their ancestors and relatives from purgatory. It's just so funny. If you listen to the Do the LDS Believe in Hell episode, this is, <laughs> this is a description um, <laughs> uh, of this. So release from purgatory. We drew a little nearer and heard several names repeated by the elders as the victims were uh, douched, but that means to be bathed. And you can imagine our surprise when the name George Washington was called. So after these 50 years, he is out of purgatory and on his way to the celestial heaven, exclamation point. Here's the thing. In addition to this event, there we have at least three other occasions in Nauvoo when George Washington was baptized. And these are cases when it's they're specifically priesthood holders doing the ordinance for him. So, in, in others, uh, you know, Ben Franklin, John Adams, you know. So, fast forward, we have Hayden Wells Church. Yes, that's his name. In, and he's doing this in the Salt Lake Endowment House. So, before they had temples ready, we do have um, a kind of a natural one uh, that we've mentioned earlier this year outside, and then they do build this kind of temporary endowment house in Salt Lakes. Uh, and that biography of Joseph F. Smith, like a fiery meteor, goes into um, his work there. He was often in charge of that. Um, here's the thing. In 1871, 1872, we have record of him being baptized for several signers of the Declaration of Independence and U.S. Presidents. And in fact, his wife being proxy baptized for their wives. And this, this then is um, confirmed, this is a weird detail, by a man named John McAllister, who would then later assist Woodruff with baptisms and as a temple recorder in St. George. So <laughs> it's a little weird. We then have a third, John Bernheisel. He was the first territorial delegate to Congress for Utah. And his daughter, Mary, they would, be, uh, would, would also work with him. And they did baptisms in Nauvoo for, quote, distinguished historical figures. And then later on in the endowment house, um, same kind of thing, including signers and philosophers like John Locke. And this was um, partly inspired by, in 1876, by the centennial of the Declaration of Independence. So he started systematically arranging work for the Founding Fathers, others, other prominent leaders. And in August 1876, he is specifically looking for the remaining signers of the Declaration of Independence, plus witnesses to the Constitution, to make sure their temple work was done. All right, now we fast or now we recognize, okay, 1871, the St. George Temple um, is now right ready for, for work. And then in 1877, this is when Woodruff did, um, did his lists, including signers, and, and then he looked at the 16 presidents. By the way, he... Woodruff didn't just look at all the names. He did know William Floyd and Thomas Jefferson had already had their work done, so he actually didn't do their, their work. So he's trying to be accurate here. And, um, and then he'll leave a few presidents off. We'll get to that in a second. 
So he, <laughs> it's the list of people he had vicarious baptized, the reading for this biography, included all the signers of the Declaration of Independence, except William Floyd. He also, this biographer also includes John Hancock, all deceased presidents except for Van Buren, Buchanan, and then the one living. And um, so here's the thing. He apparently didn't know that Church and Bernheisel had previously been baptized for these same people. In, in fact, this is quoting this article, in fact, every signer of the Declaration of Independence had been baptized by proxy before Woodruff performed that ordinance in the St. George Temple in 1877. So what do you do with that? And just to assume any sort of validity for a second, if it's if he's telling the truth, then did the priesthood ordinances not work before? Can we only trust priesthood ordinances if they're done by president of the church? Or did they really appear to him, right? <laughs> Remember the quote, none of their work <laughs> had been done. And, of course, they had. What's funny is that um, though Wilfred Woodruff had left Martin Van Buren, president of the United States, off the list, John Bernheisel had already done his. <laughs> and then, of course, later on, he would have a repeated baptism May 4th, 1938, and an endowment June 21st, 1938, both in the Salt Lake Temple. James Buchanan, who was also left off this list, he would eventually be baptized June 4th, 1932, endowment October 19th, 1932. So just in case you were curious, they eventually did get around to them. Why did he leave these two off? Well, one is because Martin Van Buren refused to help, to intervene at a, from a federal level as President of the United States in Missouri on the side of the LDS, on the side of the Mormons. And um, Joseph Smith makes a big deal of this. In fact, when he goes, he, he goes to D.C. to meet with him. And uh, apparently Van Buren said he can't help Um and, of course, according to the story, it's because for political reasons he needed the state of Missouri or whatever. Um, apparently, Joseph Smith told the newspaper reporter that uh, Van Buren, after this, that Van Buren was, quote, not as fit as my dog for the chair of state. And later on, um, reportedly said that he hoped he would continue to grow fat and swell before the next election burst. So, you know, Smith was very nice. The... Um, <clears throat> What's, what's funny is uh, I'll link to an article that points out that even Van Buren historians, sometimes they don't even mention them in their major biographies of this president. But it was a big deal to the LDS. Why not Buchanan, James Buchanan? You know, he actually gave an address in which he called more the, the Mormon system a, quote, strange system of terrorism. I, I kid you not. You could look at I'll, I'll link to stuff. He he. <laughs> I know there was the Barbary pirates that um, Thomas Jefferson had to deal with, but I think this may be the first time the use of the word terrorist threat um, was used of a group, and it was actually the LDS that is used for. He sent an army in 1857 out, and um, of course, it almost became a full-on war, which is 
Yeah, pretty scary. Okay. Here's the thing. Did this happen? I mean, I, I don't believe so. But if it did, um, it only creates almost more problems with the priesthood claims that LDS make when it comes to doing work for the dead. And, of course, the big picture take is, well, <laughs> is this not necromancy? So here is the thing, too. This will influence everything, right? What we see with other staff pens, it influences politics, Um we can also see examples culturally where books um, based on stuff like this for homeschooling kids can impact how these people are viewed. So, for example, there is a book called The Other Eminent Men of Wilford Woodruff by Vicki Jo Anderson. This book is something else. Um, <laughs> this, it, it, um, it, it has a chapter on every single one. As, as far as she could figure out, one of these people, these eminent men, and puts them as as positive a light as possible. And listen to the tone of this book. This is just see the spiritualism, the charismatic just coming through. She writes, this is in the introduction of the book. And it, she notes tons of just miraculous coincidences. And um, <laughs> in finding you know, books miraculously at, at bookshops and in libraries that helped her do her research. She says, at random, we selected one of, from a group of four or five volumes. As I sat down on the couch, I noticed my husband was already thumbing through one of the volumes. When I lifted the cover of my book, the pages seemed to turn themselves until they fell open, until they fell open to the page containing names of the signers and the other eminent men. It was as if, if someone was at my shoulder, as anxious as I was, to have these men's names known. <laughs> so yeah, she even includes um, a blessing her husband gave her in which she is encouraged to not go on popular opinion of our day when judging these people. And um, that these people were, quote, the faithful, righteous children of our Heavenly Father may realize that they too have a premortal life, that they have a calling, they have an assignment, right? This kind of stuff. And the duty is to only see the good, right? Because, I mean, when you have a de, uh, defunct doctrine of original sin, what else can you do if you assume these people are all good and worthy enough to have their temple work done? So this is the kind of book that will be used even among you know, more believing LDS homes. Um, and if he's if they're on this list, I guess they you have to assume they're good. So just it's just <laughs> it's interesting. So in, in conclusion on this part, right? We have George Washington and his family, other deceased, other presidents. We have 21 people there, signers, other eminent men, 99 or hundred people there, and then um McAllister baptized wife for 70 eminent women, and that's another variable to this story. Okay. Next. This one is something I've been doing a lot of thinking about, and I'm, honestly, I'm just not totally ready on this topic. There's just a lot more thinking and work to be done here. But this is an important nuance that I think 
all Christians that engage at a more academic slash informed level with not just LDS, but post-LDS need to see. And that is, once again, the stories we tell and how they shape our view of the present. So, if you are in a more theologically conservative believing church, and you t- that denomination goes back far enough, right, you're going to find the fundamentalism versus modernism controversy, right? And if you read more deeply, you'll realize that when you look into the figures that shape this debate, in, especially in America, but, I mean, not just here, sometimes it's way more complicated than our modern categories of conservative versus liberal or even religion versus science. But it is, you add on to that Utah's geographical isolation and then Mormonism's theological distinctives that can masquerade as con- conservative, even though often the default is more liberal than the liberals that, say, Machen was arguing against in what you know became the Presbyterian split. This can lead to a lot of confusion. So, just to kind of set some of the stage on this, what, what inspired this at all? Well... On the James episode, I didn't get to this. It this is a huge talk, but the context is so there's so much to the context of this talk that, like I said, I mean it could be its own course, even um, p- pun not intended, as you'll see. It, it's called the Charted Course of the Church and Education by J. Reuben Clark. Okay, I think it was 1938 he gave this, and then we're going to see it really applied in 1950. Yeah, 1954. So, in the seminary manual for teachers on this lesson, it says this. Teaching the scriptures and the words of prophets with conviction and purpose. Quote, your chief interest, your essential and all but sole duty is to teach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as that has been revealed in these latter days. You are to teach this gospel using as your sources and authorities the standard works of the church and the words of those whom God has called to lead his people in these last days. So that's the quote for the teachers from this talk in this lesson. And the fact they're still quoting it, um, you have to keep in mind, this talk has been so influential. But how, how to shape why it is, is really key, and it goes to the heart of what education is as answered in Mormonism's own fundamentalist versus uh, modernist controversy or conservative versus liberal controversy. Now, to kind of set some of the stage, and I know (laughs) I've heard from some of you out there that when Jason and I covered Eastern Orthodoxy, we picked too much on Baptists. Well, first off, I don't even remember that. That, Second off, well, today, you know, I'm just going to use two Presbyterian trials. Now, almost every denomination has at least one example of these. Uh, excuse me. But let me try to frame this, especially for an LDS listener that may, you know, have no sense of even the Machen controversy. Well, let's go back even further. It didn't start with J. Gresson Machen and the split between what is now the OPC and the PCUSA. Here we go. 
So in April 1874, we have a trial of a minister named David Swing. There, each one of these, by the way, you could read books on, whatever. I'm, I'm just going to highlight a few things. He is a popular minister in one of the largest churches in Chicago at the time. Okay. And he, uh, his church was Westminster Presbyterian Church. And he starts preaching, but here's the thing. On the Trinity, he starts to veer toward Unitarianism. So some form of modalism, like maybe akin to the Book of Mormon's view. Um, salvation, he is arguing that it's faith but supplemented with works. And hell may not be a place. He's brought up in trial, and he's acquitted by the presbytery. The case is appealed, and he will resign. Um, here's a couple. I, I did not write this. This is a quotation from um, a book called The Modernist Impulse by William Hutchison. And uh, I'll link also to an interesting blog post that covered this um, pretty well. He, one of his main issues is the doctrine of inspiration relative to Scripture. That's a theme with most of these, right? So he thinks it's divine assistance, but um, there's clear errors. In, a, he, in fact, he specifically cites Psalm 109. And uh, so reading from here, he's, he's denigrating propositional truth. He's very skeptical of human language to capture um, transcendent truth. Quote, insistence that all religious expressions are dependent upon the culture within which they were formulated. Now, dependent, not influenced. Notice that. It's a big difference. Negatively, this meant that scriptures, doctrines, and creeds are of less than absolute validity, and that parts of all of them must be discounted. And so what the Bible said on hell or Trinity or Jesus was simply the poetic, poetic expressions of the religious experience of a given generation— that may be contradicted by the experience of future generations. Right there, that, that's in a nutshell, right? The modernist controversy. And he, uh, of course, <laughs> um, one commentator, I like this, how else should we understand the privileging of the love of Jesus over his own statements over the reality of judgment in hell? Right, Jesus, of course, speaking of hell and judgment, more than any other biblical figure, if I'm not mistaken. And yet, he wants to um, focus on love and experience. Well, there you go. <laughs> there's, there's one that was in the news. He, he, Of course, he'll resign and start another church called the Central Church. All right. How about the Charles Briggs, Charles Augustus Briggs trial? Uh, by the way, we do know that say B.H. Roberts was following this case in the news, as we're going to get to. B.H. Roberts, of course, being huge freaking deal for Mormonism. Um, maybe their greatest general authority academic ever. But it's, I mean, it, you know, he's, he's part of that generation with Woodsow and Talmadge, but man, he is prolific. And um, I still, I, I, I think his book, The Truth, The Way, The Life, which as we'll get to, was suppressed until 1995 and actually had a conversation with one of the men that uh, approached, I think it was Gordon Hinckley, uh, to, to allow it to be published. In fact, there's two different publications. Um, 
is maybe the greatest book of Mormon theology, systematic theology, ever. But uh, that's, that's my opinion. Okay, so this, this case was a big deal. He is a professor of Hebrew in 1874, and he's famous, of course, for the Brown, Driver, and Briggs Hebrew lexicon to this day. I mean, so just brilliant um, linguist. And when he is, um, he's getting into to battles um, in a magazine called the Presbyterian Review with, you know, say, um, Charles Hodge. Um, and he thought, okay, we can mediate the, these two camps in, in debate, right? So he was co-editing this thing with Hodge. And instead, it just became an instrument of conflict within Presbyterianism. When he is um, given the chair of biblical studies at Union Theological Seminary, it's going to create such a ruckus. It's not just going to lead to trial, a heresy trial for him. It's going to lead to eventually even Union Theological Seminary uh, becoming independent uh, from the denomination that founded So his inaugural address was called The Authority of Holy Scripture, and it rejects verbal plenary inspiration, that the words of the Bible are themselves inspired. And this is, of course, aimed right at, say, the inspiration of Scripture that um, was being worked on by B.B. Warfield and, and others. So he's tried for heresy by the New York Presbytery. He's acquitted in 1892. It's appealed to the General Assembly level in 1893 in D.C., and he's found guilty by a vote of 383 to 116. He is defrocked and excommunicated. So pretty big deal. In this talk, I mean, it is actually pretty incredible um, how harsh (laughs) he he is um, on the issue. He says even things like this. Let us remove every encumbrance out of the way for a new life. The life of God is moving throughout Christendom, and the springtime of a new age is about to come upon us. And uh, he even <laughs> uh, said, calls out superstitious bibliolatry. He even says this. Inerrancy is a ghost of modern evangelicalism to frighten children. So, yeah, yeah he's, he's hitting hard. Um, one one book that I'm going to be relying on for the Mormon side of this is a book called Mormons in the Bible by, by Philip Barlow. And he says this. I thought this was helpful. For modernists, the Bible became one great religious document, among others. Christianity was but one of the major religio-ethical traditions. To these modernists, what authority the Bible retained, it retained is judged by philosophic, scientific, and experiential standards external to it. I think that's pretty good. And it, what's interesting, too, is that, you know, someone like Charles Briggs, too, if you look at what he writes elsewhere, um, you know, it's not always just explicitly liberal. And that's, you know, there's a lot of nuance you have to do. You know, people are complicated, and these figures uh, can be complicated. So here's the thing, right? The... Can see how all of this can lead to, say, 1920s issues over the virgin birth and all the issues that come out in Christianity and liberalism, where Machen tries to draw a line in the sand and say, here, no further. 
Now, in with LDSism, what is partly bizarre about what's happening here is once again the isolation um, and the legacy of Joseph Smith being, on one hand, um, extremely casual toward the Bible, uh, almost confessing at the door right the the error of the Bible, the inadequacy of the Bible, right? You don't try to add books and revelations and, and you know, let alone your own quote-unquote translation to a Bible you see as inspired on the level of, you know, um, the conservatives in Presbyterianism. Um, so, and, and yet, there is this streak among Mormons of this selectively applied uh, literalism. Now, if, you know, if it can aid um, the system as a whole, right? So it's really not the Bible in particular that can, it's the issue as much as revelation in general. My note on that is ecstatic spirituality, right? What, what is really the heart of the Mormon system? And of course, it doesn't help when you have explicitly the rejection of a learned clergy, um, in the mocking of a clergy that would go to school, right? They're so spiritual, they don't need learning. So, you know, Smith is changing the text. This becomes a model, right, for things later. So uh, we've mentioned before Brigham Young just dismissing the Genesis account as fables, right? So the... Um, the Mormon paradox is it has anti-intellectual tendencies, conceptions of static eternal truth, and a disdain for learned professional clergy. And yet, as Barlow points out, it has beliefs in a provisional, continual, you know, revelation, and this theology that's so based on knowledge, right? Knowledge is the key to progression, the nature of intelligence. The glory of God is intelligence, right? And the insistence that Mormonism is truth, whether scientific, philosophical, right? Whatever the source, this, these are both values in the Mormon scheme, right? And so early on, you, you know, you, you almost, uh, I think he, uh, Barlow puts it, deliberately lacked trained theologians, right? You're busy with polygamy, statehood, all those issues, you know, it's, this stuff isn't at the fore. And yet, um, once we head into the 1900s, um, we're going to see immediately these issues come about, especially in church education. Now, in terms of the higher criticism of the Bible, we do have little glimpses of interaction. It's just not the most informed on a lot of it. But, for example, we have George Reynolds, who, if I'm not mistaken, um is the George Reynolds of the Reynolds U.S. case. Um, if you haven't heard our Family Proclamation of the World episode, you'll hear about George Reynolds. He was a general authority, really an aide to general authorities, higher general authorities, and his polygamy case is what went to the Supreme Court. But he talks, he mentions that, you know, they're saying, oh, the name of God is how we can kind of dissect the different authors of the Pentateuch, right? This is the claim um, that there's the the Elohim author and the Yahwist, right? And he says something like this, appears never to have entered into the thoughts of these writers, that possibly two different personages were intended. 
<laughs> this is pretty fascinating, right? Because they, and to this day, if you encounter an LDS that's into, say, Margaret Barker, she does this higher critical view to find competing schools of the Old Testament. And then we'll use that to kind of build insight into the, what she sees as the most primitive or the most accurate view of Israelite religion. Well, already in the 1880s, we do have a glimpse that as soon as they catch what this what's happening with, say, Valhausen's prolegomena of ancient Israel, they're already making this thought, well, maybe it's two different gods. Now, and I thought this, this was very helpful in Barlow's book. He makes a kind of spectrum in terms of treatment of the Bible among LDS of this period. From a man named William Chamberlain, who we'll get to, to B.H. Roberts, who's going to be kind of a middle, and then on the other side, Joseph Fielding Smith. And then in between Chamberlain and Roberts is kind of where John Woodsow is, and in between Roberts and JFS is where Talmadge is. And this spectrum, notice the continuity in the differences in the spectrum. And then my attempt will be, okay, now to compare that to the Christian version as exemplified in Machen's book. Okay. First, B.H. Roberts. He was born in England in 1857. He's going to die in 1933. I've already mentioned him. We, there was a church historian, which this is a whole other story, but in 1968, Leonard Arrington, who is uh, actually trained in economics, but he was seen as a professional historian, um, who does play into <laughs> this issue just after where I'm heading with this J. Room Clark talk. He sent a questionnaire um, to Mormon PhDs and, and other intellectuals um, asking them to list the five most eminent Mormon intellectuals. 35 of the 38 respondents put Roberts at the top of the list. Okay, so big deal. And... Um, What's interesting is he, he comes over as a kid on a boat from England, walks across the plains to Utah. He barely has any schooling. Uh, he goes to a pioneer school. And this guy is just brilliant. Barlow calls him the father of modern Mormon liberalism. Okay. And um, just his bibliography is incredible. Listen to this. Let's see here. By the way, he would be elected to Congress at a certain point. He writes more than 30 books, nine historical tomes, eight theological works, three collections of sermons and commentaries, two biographies, one novel, and that does not include numerous tracts and pamphlets, 300 periodical essays, and more than 1,000 sermons. Yeah, pretty prolific. And... Once again, no formal biblical or philosophical training. He could not read Hebrew or Greek. And yet, among church officials, he may be the best biblical scholar Mormonism produced in the first century of its existence. And, I mean, he's, he's, you can tell from his citations, he's reading everyone from um, D.F. Strauss, Charles Briggs, also Elf, Alfred Edersheim, who's come up, I think, in the... Um, second Romans episode this year. So from scary left to a more conservative Messianic Jew. 
he wrote even a survey of the Bible in uh, what's called the 70s course in theology. And he loved the idea of cosmic evolution. This is what makes him partly interesting and why you can see how, um, say, those in the post-Mormon community that are more progressive will like him, even to the point where it almost does distort parts of who he is. This is a man who, when the official uh, declaration um, won, or, you know, the the manifesto on polygamy is read in 1890, refused to raise his hand and sustain it. And uh, it's said that he basically yelled out that this is wrong. Um, He also believed in the premortal unfaithfulness uh, for black people. And yet, on the science issue, he... He loves the kind of Darwinian evolutionary idea and thinks it thrives in Mormonism. Calls it cosmic evolution. And he loved writers like even Herbert uh, Spencer. So he, he champions um, methods of biblical study, including higher criticism, but once again, um, selectively. So you can see how he would like it on something like the virgin birth, which he doesn't believe, right? And yet he still defends some degree of inspiration, but he does allow human mistakes. Doctrinal insufficiency, of course, all Mormons have to say the Bible is doctrinally insufficient. And, of course, he will say there's imperfect copies, maybe the originals must have agreed with Mormonism. Um, he avo- One thing that bugs him the most about the higher critics, though, is the, the assumption of the impossibility of miracles. Um, Barlow says this, the Mormons still lived in sacred time in an age of miracles, apostles and revelations, right? Very charismatic movement. How can you jump into uh, an assumption that those things aren't real when you're claiming they're still real? I like how he puts this, though. It's like kind of a liberalized literalism. So he, um, kind of, yeah, interesting figure. On canon, uh, here it is. On canon, he he does make the point, this will tie to the last thing I want to cover today if there's any time, that Scripture doesn't make the church, but the church makes Scripture. So he's going to flip uh, the on the other side there. Now, he will also uh, point out, even using the Briggs trial, uh, he'll say Briggs was overcome by numbers, not by intelligence. He's going to agree with that comment. But he thinks that the effects of criticism were evidence against Orthodox Christendom. Which, wow, if you think what the higher critics would do with, say, the Book of Mormon, uh, that's an incredible statement. And one that I don't think he would himself uh, recognize. you got to keep in mind, this is also, B.H. Roberts eventually, in the early 1920s, is going to have a few days of meetings with every general authority of the church and put them on notice that there's historical major historical issues with the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham. And, of course, he will be dismissed. The whole event will be <laughs> basically put uh, swept under the rug. Um, and I will put a link to a um, an article that covers the secret Mormon meetings of, I think it was, um, 1922. might have been 1921 in which this occurred. And of course, at the very end, when he's thinking, okay, they're going to see the evidence and realize we need to get revelation, figure out what to do next. No, they bear his testimony at him. So if you're wondering, you know, when general authorities were known, knew there were issues, well, they've known for over 100 years. Okay, B.H. Roberts. Now, if you go to, 
what if you <laughs> if you want to look even more um, radical than he, it would be this professor who's part of this story, such an important part of the story, named William Chamberlain. You just can't believe some of this um, this work. He was, uh, of course, maybe the first Mormon teacher to make use of these methods, uh, the higher critical methods. Um, his, his years are 1870 to 1921. He graduated in science from the very first class of the University of Utah, Master of Arts degree in philosophy from the University of California. He studied ancient languages and biblical criticism, University of Chicago, and had two years at Harvard. And um, he is going to teach at BYU, and it's going to lead to, some have called it the purge of 1911, the Chamberlain-Peterson affair. It's going to be a big deal where um, kind of a crisis in church education, the first one we're going to get to. Now, he is absolutely a modernist, right? He th believes in, that God is imminent in the world and believes in a divinely inspired progressivism or evolutionary model to understand God's work in and through the natural world. He might, once again, he's taking liberalism, recognizing, oh, this fits with Mormon theology somewhat, and he's kind of mixing them. Um, right, so he, in fact, he thinks Scripture is... Um, in which men have written down their own impressions of his will, and that you have to discern the eternal grains of wheat from among the supporting leaves. And we should never confuse revealed religion with its outward forms. The revealed religion is in the hearts of living people, right? He, of course, himself defend, uh, or sorry, condemns bibliolatry, and um, that mighty prophets have acted or have written their thoughts about God and human duties. But... Bible is also full of legend, myth, error. And that Jesus, right, and once again, one thing that you'll notice about so many of the liberals, they will just, they love Jesus, love, 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 love. He came to reveal God's character and man's fullest life. It reminded me so much of, I think it was a Holland quote that Brendan read on uh, an episode um, where Holland said Jesus came to reveal God's true character or something like that, as if they didn't have the Old Testament. Apparently that was inadequate to do so. Well, this guy is going to be disciplined in 1911 and removed from BYU. In fact, uh, it's going to be four. There's going to be two Peterson brothers and um, two Chamberlain brothers. And these four all had academic um, resume in actual, you know, outside universities, right, from Chicago and elsewhere. And um, it's going to create an issue at BYU. Now, one thing you, you <laughs> I've, I've mentioned uh, an acad sorry, a, a BYU professor thinker in the War in Heaven episode, Nelson. And he actually loved the idea of evolution. He thought the only thing Darwin needed was some form of intelligent design from the gods, right? So it's actually not true that it was just anti-evolution uh, from the start. In fact, um, we have a BYU article in February 16, 1909, just loving Darwin. <laughs> I mean, and... Um, they actually had services commemorating the centennial of his birth and the semi-centennial 
of the publication of The Origin of Species. And that <laughs> it's amazing that, uh, yeah, there's this incredible article, February 16th, 1909, in the BYU newspaper, um, White and Blue is what it's called. And what they say is just amazing. I'll put it in the show notes. There's, a, there's actually a history of BYU that covers the controversy in quite a bit of detail. And um, it's, it's pretty... It's a pretty pretty amazing incident that, um, once again, you you may only encounter among kind of post Mormon progressives or progressives who have stayed in and are aware of this this issue. And basically, you have a commissioner going and investigating investigating in BYU is uncomfortable with what he perceives as a threat to their theological stance. Um, people are going to be looking into it, and yeah, you know. Eventually, two will be um, fired and two will resign over the inability to teach uh, evolution and these kind of critical methods uh, toward Scripture. But before that, already you see this pro, like this love of Darwin there that, um, you know, I think would be surprising to those who would just kind of guess, what would Utah be, you know, Provo be like in 1909? Well, in, as part of all the controversy that was going on, William Chamberlain will even write an article called Aid to Faith in God and Belief in the Resurrection, um, meaning evolution, right, um, February 14th, 1911. But anyway, this will be very um, disruptive and traumatic. And in fact, there would be a petition of students, um, and I've seen five, six, and I've seen the number 80% of students, uh, we're signing a petition to retain them because they loved them, these professors um, that are kind of seen, they're, they're probably seen as like the Galileo figures of the Mormon of Mormon history or something like that. Um, that being said, they often don't continue the story where then there's going to be um, David O. McKay coming in and trying to rehire William Chamberlain, but he'll end up uh, dying before that occurs. And so, they're actually, in the 1920s, there's less hostility again. It flips back. So, think of it like a pendulum swing in church education. Um, but, so, for example, you had the BYU newspaper, Y News, that had an article February 9th, 1927, the birthdays of many great Americans. This is many great Americans. And Charles Darwin was on the list. <laughs> it's almost like they, it, the fact that Darwin was British um, didn't, um, you know, stick. But he, you know, Darwin was seen as this great figure for tolerance and whatever. So, okay. Now, back to this spectrum. On the quote unquote conservative side of the LDS form of this debate is Joseph Fielding Smith. Now, keep in mind that even Joseph Fielding Smith, does, does he look at the Genesis creation count as um, literal? Well, more so, right? But he also believes in Mormon theology which has to start with this, the inadequacy, the Bible as far as it translated correctly, things like this, right? That being said, he does have a more literalist view of the revealed Word of God, and um, but once again, selective. So, for example, this is interesting. He looks at Isaiah 68 and thinks, oh, there's modern airplanes. So he likes to also find in this literalism evidence um, of Scripture's inspiration. Um, of course, once again, Genesis creation, not historical or accurate. 
Yet with evolution, he he gives a speech later on, right? That how could people believe it? Satan's deceived them. That's that's it. And yet even Heber J. Grant makes comments like he is leading Mormon scriptorian, right? So he is big on scripture, as was his uh, father, uh, Joseph F. Smith. So uh, Joseph F. Smith will become president of the church. Joseph Fielding Smith will eventually become president of the church. But he, um, he does respond to higher criticism, and some of his arguments are kind of interesting. Um, he, he does think there's unreasonable tests of authenticity, when it comes to some of the Old Testament texts, he does point out an irony in the theories being becoming new dogmas. He um, does talk about the presentist conceit of some of these um, modernists. And um, if there are internal contradictions and historical mistakes, he does want to blame them on scribes and translators. So, that, you know, you can kind of see some overlap here with even a B.H. Roberts. But at the same time, he is going to get into a lot of Seventh-day Adventist literature and things like that. Um, very conspiracy-minded, um, fiercely young earth creation. And, and this is going to lead to him headbutting with B.H. Roberts. And, and literally, th- this is going to be a fierce battle because B.H. Roberts had written the book I just mentioned. Uh, Joseph... Fielding Smith is going to write a book called Man, His Origin, and Destiny, if I'm not mistaken. And they are basically speaking at each other on this stuff. In fact, there's going to be meetings where they both can air their arguments before. I can't remember if it was the president of the church or the the, um, first presidency. But anyway, Heber J. Grant will basically say, stop it. And um, what, what is going to be part of the historical irony and it's going to land in Joseph Fielding Smith's favor, is he's going to outlive everybody. So as soon as Roberts and Woodsow and Talmadge are gone, and then you know Joseph Fielding Smith will publish his book, um, and that's going to create the LDSism that so many of the first wave of Christian evangelists are going to be interacting with in the form of Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie. What I think is sometimes missed is that that's more of a blip. It's not that, you know, going back to a Woodsow or a B.H. Roberts is the blip later on. No. The, the, Mormon theology in its liberal form uh, relative to Christian conservative theology is what is normal. That's that's the thing, right? It's it was the kind of conservative backlash in the form of those thinkers. There's others as well. That is the blip. And so, if you focus too much on a on a McConkie and a Fielding Smith, I don't think you're getting a good sense of the pulse of Mormonism, as you see even with a Nelson Nelson, for example, or or BYU later on. Now. Um, I've talked a lot about Woodso and Talmadge. To, to kind of move along more quickly, I'll skip some of that. But just recognize that Woodso, as I've already pointed out, he's kind of in between Chamberlain and Roberts. Or Chamberlain, sorry, Chamberlain. I keep saying Chamberlain. It's William Chamberlain. And um, in the sense that he is very pro-evolution, less loyal 
to the literal text. Um, Talmadge, who writes Jesus the Christ, right, he's going to be in between Roberts and Joseph Fielding Smith. So he's he's not with Joseph Fielding Smith in being so dogmatic about the literal text. Of course, keep in mind, Joseph Fielding Smith is treating all of LDS scripture this way. Um, Talmadge's biography is a part of the Victorian Lives of Jesus tradition that was so famous at that time. Um and does engage with the scholarship of the time, as we've covered before. Um, but it's, yeah, kind of in between Roberts and Joseph Fielding Smith. And in, in terms of what the church leadership, the First Presidency are doing, we have a Charles Penrose, Anthony Ivins, First Presidency um, response in terms of an inquiry about the literality of the Bible. And what they basically do is not take a side. And this kind of move at this period is when you start seeing um, that become the norm. Uh, when there's a controversy, just try not to take a side. By the way, this happened with the papacy in the 19th, going into the 20th century as well, on the Roman Catholic side of the divine. And um, so they will say, okay, the Bible is the word of God as far as translated correctly, but what is important is not historical accuracy, but doctrinal accuracy. So kind of interesting. Okay, so I covered the 1911 um, controversy, the the, the uh, kind of Chamberlain affair, uh, Chamberlain-Peterson affair, where once again, two are formally charged by the Church Board of Education, and then other two are going to resign in the name of science and whatever. Galileo complex, but still, you know, they didn't have the freedom to teach what they sincerely believed, uh, let alone what they sincerely believed was academic, and it led to this issue. Well, then there's this backlash, and uh, Barlow does continue this. The most, of the, most of the time, progressives tell the story, and it becomes this descent into Joseph Fielding Smith, but that's actually not true, that David O. McKay had officially recommended that Chamberlain be reappointed to teach for the church's schools. And um, so, oh, it is Chamberlain. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. Chamberlain. William Chamberlain, Ralph Chamberlain. So, you know, it is not just a dissent story, but here's the thing. Now we're getting to this talk by um, J. Ruben Clark. Why is this one such a big deal? Well, once again, the backlash the other way led to a lot of um, lack of doctrinal control from the top and then eventually political control from the top. And this is just something that's hard to fully appreciate now. You had official statements from church leaders like Heber J. Grant against FDR, against the New Deal, and yet in Utah they voted for FDR all four times. And they voted to repeal prohibition contrary to what Heber J. Grant um, wanted. And so you had just this lack of control uh, from the top that's going to lead to another, yet another educational church crisis. And this is when J. Reuben Clark gives his, his talk on charting the course. Now, what's interesting about J. Reuben Clark, why is he such a big deal? We've covered him quite a bit over the year. Uh, here and there, right? He is the KJV only guy. He is um, he worked for not only three 
presidents. He was in three first presidencies. So he literally worked for three U.S. presidents, but he also worked in three first presidencies. And at the time, he gives this in 1938, right? This is right on the eve of the war. And so during the war, there's kind of this hiatus on, on a lot of things. But his war is both more political, con, uh, political influence by the church leaders and more doctrinal uh, emphasis, doctrinal faithfulness in the education system. So in 1954, what actually happens at BYU campus, they institute once again this CES summer school for the teachers. And they used to do this over the summer for the teachers. And keep in mind, this is, okay, we've had the purge in 1911, the liberalizing the 20s. And in fact, sometimes at these summer schools, you even had non-LDS scholars come speak. Uh, Lynn Packer points out Edgar J. Goodspeed as one of these. And... This is going to stop. And J. Roman Clark, is. this is going to be how he implements this is through typically, there's more people, of course, involved, but Harold B. Lee and Boyd K. Packer. This is when Boyd K. Packer comes in. Keep in mind, he came up through the church education system, the CES. And in this talk, you'll notice if you read some of it, He'll say things like this. The first requisite of a teacher for teaching these principles is a personal testimony of their truth. And he, he lists them, right? Jesus the Christ, Joseph Smith God's prophet, the first vision, things like this. No amount of learning, no amount of study, and no number of scholastic degrees can take the place of this testimony, which is the sine qua non of the teacher in our church school system. No teacher who does not have a real testimony of the truth of the gospel is revealed to and believed by the Latter-day Saints, and a testimony of the sonship and messiahship of Jesus, and of the divine mission of Joseph Smith, including in all its reality the first vision, has any place in the church school system. If there be any such, and I hope and pray there are none, he should at once resign. If the commissioner knows of any such, and he does not resign, the commissioner should request his resignation. The first presidency expect this pruning to be made. So, this is emphasizing not scholarship or gaining, you know, more academic knowledge, challenging ideas, thinking through things, but gaining testimony. Testimony. Spiritual witness. This becomes the litmus test for the church education system. And that has continued to this day. So what changed? Well, um, and I don't know who to give credit to. I've just heard a lot of podcasters say this. The internet happened. <laughs> the internet happened. That's what changed. And so all of a sudden, what was an opportunity to deal with the history for their own members, which was brought up at the time in 1954, and we do have some evidence that Boyd K. Packer said things like, hide it. Um, no, that's now all of a sudden they're finding it on the internet. They're hearing John DeLynn, whatever. And what do you do now? Well, that's, where, that's the context for 
the September 2014 Gospel Topics essays when they started to release these essays and deal more with the issues but within the framework of faith. This is what some wanted back then, and yet um, that is not the direction the church took. There's a, There was an elder, Stephen Snow, who was a church historian, on Mormon land. It's, this interview is fascinating. I'll link to it where he even says, quote, there's a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed. Well, that doesn't work anymore. And so here you have the kind of residue of a church education system that's not prioritizing actual education, but testimony building and protecting testimony. And yet being confronted with all of the, the you know, these facts and the messiness and all of that, and that's, that's the context where we are now. So, this is, um, in, in this 1954 school, just to tie a bow on some of this stuff, um, they even had Marky e. Peterson come and speak on race problems. Wow, you want to read some racist stuff. Elder Apostle, uh, LDS Apostle Marky e. Peterson, he came in that. This is also the context in which JFS uh, gave his man his origin and destiny, which, by the way, put a little nuance in it. J. Abram Clark may have responded uh, by um, giving a talk, when are church leaders' words entitled to the claim of Scripture? Gary Bergera in his book points out the irony that Clark had so much confidence in policies he saw as doctrinal, but this may have been actually to try to um, create space for people who didn't fully agree with Joseph Fielding Smith. But um, anyway, showing the kind of clout he had that he could do that even to uh, Joseph F. Smith's um, son and... Uh, Hiram Smith's grandson. And um, so after, after this, remember, this is Boyd K. Packer's mentality. There's one other thing I want to point out. This is with when the, the motto became follow the brethren. It stresses LDS orthodoxy throughout its curriculum and in, in a very more shallow way. Um, I don't know how else to put it. Um, and there's a famous, in the tradition of this charted course talk, there's a famous talk that um, Boyd K. Packer gave that is called The Mantle is Far Greater Than the Intellect. And I've, I've probably quoted this a couple times throughout the year, but this is the kind of thing he'll say. This is a famous line in there. Uh, He gives a number of cautions. The second caution is, quote, there is a temptation for the writer or the teacher of church history to want to tell everything, whether it is worthy or faith-promoting or not. Some things that are true are not very useful. So, once again, you can clearly see this, um, this continuation up till today. And now... Under Nelson, this is what he has inherited. And we see both, you know, kind of red meat thrown to both sides of this issue today. So you do have the Gospel Topics essays. We don't know what they ultimately mean in terms of the position of the church. And we do know uh, from people who would know that it was deliberately made to be several clicks away on the website. So... Anyway, now back to the big picture. If you look at this kind of equivalent 
of the liberalist, liberal conservative debate. You can see why post-Mormons who are more liberal would um, see, assume uh, on any other person like a Machen that the liberals were in the right. And here's where it should be so obvious that the categories break down. Are we really going to say that Jay Gresham Machen and Boyd K. Packer are on the same side? I hope that was a resounding no out there. Okay, what's what else is going on? Well, when, and I don't know how else to put it, when you're dealing with a false religion, like Mormonism, um, the liberals want more transparency and honesty, which is great, right? And transparency and honesty. Not that conservatives in Christianity should oppose that. It's just, right, it, I mean, I, I look at the liberals of this debate, and I'm more on their side, not, not entirely, but more on their side relative to Mormonism. Uh, when you have Packer on record saying things like, you know, hide the history, you know, um, we need to hide it from them. No, um, how you know, that's not honest. And and frankly, um, I just think that so many post Mormons won't see that relative to say the Presbyterian controversy. Who's playing the word games and being more dishonest? Who's taking vows to uphold standards that they play word games with and don't actually mean? So when Jay Gresham Machen is saying, calling for integrity, I would say, no, he's in the right on this. Does that make sense? So, yeah, a lot more work has to be done here, including on the science angle. I probably spent a little more, honestly, most most of the Mormon version deals more with science than with the Bible. Uh, Philip Barlow tries to counter that with a little more um, focus on how they treat texts. But once again, I think the most conservative Joseph Fielding Smith, for example, he has a quirky combination of a unhelpful literalism that we have seen on the fundamentalist side of the line and a liberalism akin in some cases, to the left of even some of the liberals described here, say on the virgin birth issue or things like that. So anyway, I hope that helps show, A, why it's a big deal <laughs> um, that this talk is still being cited in the manual, but also that it's, we start to think in terms of our historical time and place about these categories and how even post-Mormons may totally miscategorize what we mean when we would put ourselves on the conservative side of the line theologically. Okay. Now, uh, I'll try to finish up here really quick. Um, on the last um, lesson, they did mention a talk by Holland on defending an open canon. And, uh, in fact, I just... Sometime we'll go through it completely. But I would just say, for those out there who want to learn more about canon issues, do we have the right books? How do we know we have, or justify, right, the belief in the books of the Bible as we have them? Michael J. Kruger is the guy to read. Michael J. Kruger. Um, he has two books 
um, the question of canon and canon revisited. I highly recommend getting these books, and they're very relevant here. And it's, it's just incredible. You can actually hear talks from even Bruce R. McConkie, once again, on the so-called conservative side of this divide, um, using apocryphal books and, you know, even Gnostic texts and stuff like that as arguments against the canon. I mean, it way ahead of the time. And even, even saying long before Bart Ehrman that all we have are copies of copies of copies of copies. So, Sean, once again... Yeah, we got to rethink these categories, but also showing that we need to know our stuff as Christians. And there are good resources on this question that deal with, you know, the even the tough books like a Second Peter um, or Revelation, whose canonicity had been questioned at certain points. And um, that being said, you know, questions on the edge about say an Esther in the Old Testament or a Jude in the new does not mean all books were up in the air. And uh, Kruger does a great job of helping. I think uh, people think through first, know the evidence, but also think through what evidence can mean. So before we jump to these conclusions that so many of the loud voices out there want us to immediately jump to. Okay. So on that note, I will um, end with just an encouragement to keep thinking. I, I hope if you have feedback, positive and or negative, if there's anything here that you would like deeper dive on, uh, please let us know at distinctivechristianity at gmail.com. I hope um, I'm getting a little better at presentation, especially when I'm alone. It's kind of weird. Um, but I, I love constructive criticism um, if you care to give it. So thank you so much for listening all year. This What a year. Honestly, what a year. I, I kid you not. Brendan reached out middle of December last year with this idea. And I can't thank him enough for this opportunity. <laughs> I mean, to start more selfishly self in a self-centered way. It's been a great opportunity to face um, even things that brought up a lot of pain, a lot of um, early on um, dealing once again with stuff that I used to sincerely believe and didn't want to think about anymore. And hopefully over the year, hopefully you can hear it too. It's not that I'm not passionate. Of course I'm passionate. I will always be passionate. But I've, it's been an opportunity to face those things and kind of more come to terms and have closure on those things and be able to deal with it, um, hopefully, ideally, uh, maturely and in an, almost a, more like an anthropologist. And at the same time, um, recognize this is um, if Jesus' claims are true, if the Bible is true, this is salvation we're dealing with. This is, you know, um, the the most important questions anyone can ask that we're dealing with when we deal with these issues. And how to keep the firmness on the issues um, and yet love um, for people. Um, that, you know, I think all of us... Um, should be working on that and hopefully I will improve over time at sometimes maybe not imagining some LDS apologists on the other side of the table that I'm arguing with. Um, but our, our neighbors who are so nice and often have almost no idea of their own history and doctrine, let alone ours. And um, I just think, um, and honestly, this thought, I'll, I'll, and maybe this, this is where I will end. When I was doing the uh, response to Apology Utah on the Hell, 
uh, episode. This thought occurred to me, and once again, this is a warning to me, this all of us, right? You know, um, we are we are asking people to not only abandon or complicate, at best complicate, their sense of self, their worldview, their friendships, their family, their future. For what we are putting forth as the claims of Christ. If we're not willing to learn and admit mistakes and, you know, um, when we make them and adjust even uh, the accuracy of our view of, say, Mormon theology, I'm not really sure what we're doing asking people to sacrifice so much more, right? And um, so I hope in that episode I was firm because I think I'm right on this. Um, But at the same time, um, I'm not sure why... (laughs) That bugged me more than any of the LDS attacks I've had. Um, but I think it's that. I think I think that's what it is. And it's something I've been thinking about. But I, I just hope we can talk and learn from each other um, as Christians about this, getting our understanding as precise as possible on Mormon theology. And, and therefore have that inform the goal of an equally precise view of the Christian worldview. And, and once again, keep organically tied the, the academic rigor, the intellectual rigor, but with that heart, heart for the salvation of souls, knowing ultimately it's in God's hands, and apart from the grace of God, I'd be worse. And honestly, I, I feel sometimes a survivor's guilt relative to this. All right. Thank you for listening all year. I I hope uh, this hasn't gone on too long. Hopefully there's some good stuff in here, Um, but let us know. All right. Thank you so much.